happened. And now is it also time to grab your Bible, your translation of God's holy word. I want to encourage you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Colossians. Letter written by Paul while he was imprisoned. And today we get a little insight on Paul, inspiration of God using the experiences of Paul to let us know a little bit what he's thinking about. But before we do, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, God, we are thankful to be here today. God, we anticipate great things happening within us and around us, God, because you are a great and mighty God. And so meet with us. God, help us to fall greater and deeper in love with you today, that we might serve you better and seek you out in every corner of this planet. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps uh, you may have heard of the, the sad news that uh, and, and Robin Williams is old news now because that's the way news cycles work. Today, this morning, doing my scouring of the news, I found that uh, Horshack, 63 years old, is dead. And suddenly, all throughout the room, people are thinking the same thing. Who is that? Who just did that? Who just did that? And suddenly everyone knows. <laughs> Welcome back, Cotter, the guy with the unmistakable laugh, 63 years old. Well, as long as we're in the 70s and uh, we've already moved on to the theme of uh, who is that, we could uh, jump to 1978. A gentleman named uh, Pete Townsend wrote a song sung by one uh, Roger Daltrey. Uh, perhaps if uh, you have ever watched the, the show CSI, you are familiar with the tune. And everybody said, the tune is, Who Are You? Who are you? And now the song is playing in your head. It'll go away eventually. But we're going to play on that just a little bit. You know what? Every moment... Or every person in this room and on the planet has at some point asked this question about themselves. Who am I? You know, imagine with me, if you will, for a moment, that you are going to have someone pick you up at the airport that you have never met. They have no idea who you are. What would you tell them about yourself? Hair color? Really? Do you have a hair color that no one else has? How about your height? I guess everyone has one of those too. And the fact is we line up people and all of a sudden we've got some, some similarities. I mean, if someone just says, uh, tell me about yourself, where do you go? Well, we start with what we do. Well, I'm a... I mean, what makes you, you anyway? I mean, what makes anyone who they are different from anyone else? Is it your experiences? Is it abilities that, you, that come naturally to you? Skills that you have honed over the years? I mean, what makes you, you? Life questions. Important questions. Because what we believe about ourselves will determine the, the, the course that we will traverse in our life. Challenges that we will face, 
and challenges that we will walk away from. Who are you? An even better question this morning that might define who you are is who is Jesus? And if you will turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to jump in at verse 15. You see, when, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, is in jail for the preaching of the gospel, suffering and alone, the thing on his mind is Jesus. And how do we know that? Because he starts with a prayer, and then the next whole chapter is nothing but Jesus. I mean, he doesn't even end his prayer with amen. So how do you know when you're done? If nobody says amen, it can be very confusing. You know, are we talking uh, how you're feeling now, or what are we talking about? But Paul, just as he is prone to do, starts uh, talking about something, and then he says, I want to talk a whole lot more about that kind of energized about it. You know how that is. You hear something, your ears perk up, and you're just waiting for those lips to stop so you can jump in and talk about your experience, about how you feel about these things. And here's Paul talking about Jesus. And what we're going to do this morning is look at perhaps the most Christocentric, Christ-centered passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. I mean, what you're looking at here is found in no other place in the Scripture. This is like the pinnacle of the mountain. You can get no higher than what we see here in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, recorded and preserved for you and I to read and consider here this morning. And so today, in these nine verses that we're going to look at, verses 15 and 23, we're going to look, find seven characteristics about Jesus and about who he is, answering the most important question to ever be asked. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they came up with numerous answers. Some think you might be a prophet. Some other people think this and that and the other thing. And there are, there are opinions all over the planet who Jesus is. Was he nothing more than a, a good man, victim of politics? But Paul, here in the, this letter to the church at Colossae, answers that question, who Jesus is. And again, we find seven characteristics. So let's, uh, let's begin our endeavor here in verse 15. And notice uh, the seven statements about Jesus that Paul lays out here for us this morning. In verse 15, we read this, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, uh, you know, sometimes we would ask Paul for a little more clarification. I mean, what are we talking about, the word image? The Greek word is icon, and uh, that might be familiar with us. As a matter of fact, Family Bible Church has a contract with a company named Icon. Any ideas what they might do? <laughs> they sell copiers, copy machines. Imagine taking these uh, unknown uh, places inside of your computer where somewhere lies this document that you're typing up. you got some WYSIWYG on your computer, means what you see is what you get. It's all laid out just the way you want it, but let's face it, really, it doesn't exist. It's, it's a bunch of ons and offs and zeros and ones, and it doesn't make any sense until we hit print, and suddenly we have something we can hold on to. It's no longer an idea. It's no longer little digital lights on a monitor. It's the real deal. The Gospel of John tells us this about Jesus. 
that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you want to know what God is like, take a look at Jesus. If you want to know what God would say, take a look at Jesus. He is the image of God. Image here uh, means a visible expression, a visible expression, representation, or manifestation. God, who is the invisible God, can be seen in Jesus. The visible Jesus. A representation? No, that's not even a good word. The visible image of an invisible God. That is Jesus. And so the first place that Paul starts is with his deity. That of all of the things that you know about Jesus, it has to start here. That Jesus, the Son of God, is very God. He is God of all gods, King of all kings. Because there is one God in three persons existing eternally in perfect unity. Jesus, the Son of God, He is God Himself. Again, the visible image of an invisible God. He is God in flesh. And that's a place to start here today. Let's make no mistake, there are people out there with all kinds of opinions. The Muslims would say, Jesus, oh yes, Jesus, He was a great man, a great prophet. And we honor Him in that regard, but they will not honor Him as God. But Jesus is God, and if you were to honor Jesus, you would honor him as God. But he doesn't stop there. I notice second, uh, the second characteristic here. Uh, we don't even have to leave verse 15 to find it. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now that word firstborn can uh, throw you off here a little bit. It sounds like that maybe Jesus had a beginning. And yeah, we know all about Christmas. You know, God sent his son. He is the pre-existent incarnate Christ, but he existed before that birth. He was sent, not created. So what does this word firstborn mean? Well, uh, you may have known that, uh, that it was uh, the National Middle Child Day this week. Uh, did you notice that? Yeah, nobody ever does. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And everyone said, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. No, we're not talking about birth order here. Talk about a blast to the 70s here. Huh? Some of you are going, what are you talking about? Oh, my goodness. Firstborn is not about birth order in the Bible. It is about the place of honor. The firstborn received double the inheritance. Why? Just because he got out first? That was, the, uh, the, that, was, that was the issue here. So when you talk about firstborn, you're not specifically talking about order. You're talking about honor. And when we talk about Jesus as the firstborn over creation, we are talking about that he is over all of creation. I mean, what a place to start. There's God, and then what? Well, there's everything else. And how is he related to it? The scripture tells us he is over it, all of it. There is nothing outside of his grasp, nothing that he has to reach and still can't get to. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. 
The firstborn is the place of honor. So he precedes creation. He comes before creation. He eternally existed before the incarnation with the Father and the Holy Spirit in perfect unity. He precedes it, but he also presides over it. He precedes creation and he also, uh, he also presides over creation. And, uh, and that naturally leads into our third. Talk to more about what it means that uh, he is the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, Paul lays out his relationship to creation and says, For, for by him all things were created. Wait a minute. I, I thought the Father did that. It always felt like the Father was the one talking. And yet Paul here lays out clearly that when God spoke, it was Jesus who spoke. The Word of God who brought all things into existence is Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. And just in case you miss it, Paul says, all things. And while it's not true that all means all and that's all all means, it does mean it here. You're going to have to write that down and think about it later. <laughs> but today, friends, let's make it clear that Jesus is God and Jesus is the creator of all that exists. He precedes it. He presides over it. He is the author of all that is. And so thus far, the first three, Jesus is the image of God, a visible image of the invisible God. We can see the invisible God as we look unto Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn over creation, and he is the creator of the universe. But notice as we continue on, after all things were created through him and for him, created through him, and all these things exist, why? For him. And he is before all things, as we have stated, and in him. Think about this, in him all things hold together. All things hold together. Apparently without Jesus, everything, not just my life, not just your life, but everything would fall apart. He is the creation glue that holds it all together. All of these things in his creation, he is the one that completes it all, holds it all together, yet separate and distinct from his creations. There are religions out there they would say, God is everywhere, and I believe that. But they don't say what I believe. They say, you see this music stand over here? God is in that. God is in the tree, and is in the rug, and he's in the wood over here, and in the chair you're sitting on. But it's not true. Well, God is everywhere. He is not everything. He is separate and distinct from his creation. And so Jesus who is the visible image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn over all creation, 
who is the creator of the universe, I notice fourthly that Jesus also is the head of the church. Notice in verse 18, and he is the head of the body. Again, that beautiful picture of the church. It is a body where every part counts. Every part necessary, working together in unison. And Jesus is the head of the body. Now that word head, it's, it's a nice image, but really what does it mean? The Greek word here is kephale. It's an important word. And suddenly those who went to Bible school went, I know that word. Wait a minute. What does that mean? It means head. <laughs> but again, what does the word head mean? I mean, what does it imply? Well, head can mean source. Where did the church come from? God chose, but Jesus redeemed. Jesus died that the church might live. You and I, that we could have life and life abundantly. Life that is eternal. He is the head of the church in that he is also the source. But head can also mean this. It can also mean authority. The head of the church is the, the one who has authority over the church. Jesus not only started it, died for it, he has authority over it. And so any church that understands the, the, the teaching of the Scripture and writes out an uh, organizational chart will always at the top put Jesus. And it would do us all well to be reminded of that every now and again that Jesus is the one that rules and supersedes and works among the churches. In the book of the Revelation, we see Jesus moving amongst the candlesticks, all representing the churches, burning for him. He moves among the churches. And it is he that evaluates the churches and sends off these little letters of, value, of evaluation and correction. He is the head of the church. And so when we're praying for the church, we might consider talking to the head of the church. And I wonder, by the way, just uh, by way of a reminder here, last, last week when we met and we looked through this prayer for the church that Paul has, I wonder if you incorporated any of that into your prayer life. It begins to change the whole perspective of prayer when it becomes less of a list and more of a pleading for others. Let of God make me comfortable by making this easy or taking this burden away. Or God, how about God make us what you would have us to be. Help us to grow in our understanding of your will. We talk to the head of the church who started the church and has authority over the church. And if that isn't enough and we couldn't write books, many a tree has died and Oceans of ink spilt on all of these topics, my friend. Paul continues on here. He says he is also the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent. Above it all. That he might be glorified because of it. 
that everything you see, the goodness of God in His hand working everywhere, ought to be a trampoline that takes your eyes to Him and that He would receive the glory. He is the firstborn among the dead. Well, there's that word firstborn again. From the dead, it certainly references His resurrection from the dead. He is the beginning. See, the promise of resurrection to new life Eternal life is, is, is based upon the very fact that Jesus also rose from the dead. That he too received a glorified body as each of us will because of our faith in Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is the firstborn. And first in this context, which is a little different than authority here, certainly has some connection with first. Not first uh, perhaps in preeminence, but first in order. Firstborn from the dead. Firstborn from the dead. The one who has risen in all that we preach here, all that we believe, all that we study in the Word of God is founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote a chapter to the church at Corinth, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, about the importance of the resurrection. And without it, we are, above all men, most miserable. That means we have no hope and we are still in our sins if Christ did not rise from the dead. And as Paul reminds us here, he did. He was the first to rise from the dead to new life. And you and I, by faith, will follow him one day. So he is the firstborn from the dead. And then verse 19, almost encircling all of the things that he just said, he says this, that Jesus is the fullness of God. The fullness of God. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There are a couple of words here that uh, need some emphasis. And the first one is fullness. Do you mean that he is the fullness of God? And uh, the word uh, fullness means completeness. It's not a glass being filled up. It is a race that is completed. It is a house that has the last bit of trim installed. It is completeness, lacking nothing. Jesus is not part God. He is holy God. And the fullness of God dwells in him. You uh, may have a smartphone. If you have a smartphone, then you perhaps have apps, short for applications on your phone. And if you have applications, then you may have at some point come across an app that is something light. It is the free version it is the one that introduces you enough to it, but then it says, eh, we can't go any further. If you want to be able to do this, you got to buy the full version. Jesus is not Jesus' light. He is not. He can do most of the things that God can do. Well, he has most of the knowledge or most of anything. He has all that God has because he is very God. And so when we consider Jesus, he's not our buddy, he is God. And he loves us with a love that we cannot even comprehend. Such great love. And if you think you understand it, it's because you don't understand it. His love is unfathomable. And he is the fullness of God.
See, the word completeness, fullness, speaks of nothing lacking in his deity. But what about the word dwell there? I think the word dwell matters here. Now, what are we talking about here? Uh, Dwell. uh, Dwell means uh, that he did not become God, nor will he ever cease to be God. To dwell means, the word means to remain. You say, well, well, he took on flesh and became a man. No, no, no. He took on humanity. He didn't become a man. He took on humanity. So he is a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man. He took on humanity that he might die in the place of humanity. Very important, friends. But the word dwell means to remain. No changes in the future. When we see Jesus, he will have a glorified body. The Holy Spirit will still be spirit, meaning no body. The Father, invisible God. But Jesus, we will see. We will touch. We will know him as we are known. And what a day that will be. And all the people that we have loved that have gone on before us, we will see them there. And we will celebrate. And all those prickly things that you're feeling on your arms and all over just thinking about it will become reality. No more a thought, no more a hope. But one day the real deal. Well, so he is the fullness of God. Here we are down in verse 20. And we notice this. And through him, okay, and through him, God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself. (coughs) All things, whether on earth or in heaven. And this is perhaps not something that immediately comes to mind when we think of Jesus. But Jesus is the great reconciler. And I'm not talking about accounting here, friends. I'm talking about people that God brings together. You see, when Adam and Eve were put in this garden in the perfect circumstances... There were no bad influences in their life, people with bad language and bad habits and and horrible goals for their life and the people around them. You see, Adam and Eve were put in a garden to live and to love God, to enjoy the things that he created for his glory. But they chose sin over God. They looked at God and they got out their scale said, yeah, God has given us a bunch, but maybe God's holding, holding back on something. He's holding back some good things from us, and they sinned. And because of their sin, not only did humanity fall, but all of God's creation fell. And as Paul wrote in the book of Romans, even nature groans waiting for a day of redemption. And Jesus is going to reconcile it all. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And it will be unimaginable, as amazing as it is, to see the beautiful colors smeared across the sky, sunrise and sunset. That'll be just the beginning. There is a day coming, my friends, but he is a reconciler. Reconciliation is needed, of course, because of the fall. But reconciliation is accomplished Through the cross. How will he do this reconciliation? By making peace 
by the blood of his cross here at verse 20. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by death. We have the table of communion before us. We are reminded that Jesus died to bring us to himself, but not just to himself, with others. You know, back in the 70s, there were these uh, phrases that were used among church folk, like Jesus as our personal Savior, you know? Um, And I think I know why they would say that, you know, because it takes a personal decision. But He's not a personal Savior. He is the Savior of the church. He is the Savior of all who believe. And there's nothing personal about that. Everything about salvation is public. It is unifying. It is a church. It is a nation. It is the people of God together. And so when we think about our relationship with Jesus, we must include with that the people of God. Because the relationship we have with God, it is included with others. God has placed us in a body. And he has given us a future. So it is accomplished through the cross. And this reconciliation has a purpose, by the way. You know, you have been reconciled to Christ through faith. You have been reconciled with a body. Put into a body, but with a purpose. A purpose too oft forgotten or not known at all. And the purpose here at the end of verse 22 is this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, the purpose for which you have been reconciled is also to be changed. You say, I'm a lot different than I was. And with the work of the Spirit of God in your life, you will be a lot different than you are now. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank God that I will one day not be the man that I am today. I thank him that I am not the man today that I was 20 years ago. I am thankful that God has changed me, but the work of change is not complete. One day you will be holy and blameless. That is the work that the Spirit of God is working in all of our lives today. And The problem is too many of us are pushing against it. Well, you know, that's a good, but not now. Maybe for heaven later, but I got my own agenda here. No, there is only one agenda that will work in this world, and that is to cooperate with what God is doing. He is the great reconciler. And so, a bit of a glimpse as to who Jesus is. Perhaps some reminders, perhaps some new information here this morning, friends. But today... I ask you this, if Jesus is God, then obey him. If Jesus is God, and he is, then obey him. Well, how how do we obey him? We first find out what it is that he has said, and then we do it. We trust in the things that he has said. We obey him by faith. We do not obey him in understanding, say, God, you're going to have to explain this to me. Why should I do this? The reason you ought to do it is just the way your parents did it, because I told you so. 
and I told you so is wrapped up in the goodness of God, the greatness of God, and the promises of God. That's why we obey Him. That's why we hear His words. We understand them, accept them as true, and we do it by faith. And if Jesus is God, then we ought to worship Him. And so when, when we meet together on a Sunday or throughout the week when the song comes on the radio and the focus of it is Jesus and we sing out from within us and then we sing out from our voices and we give him the praise and the adoration that he deserves and we're reminded that he is God, that he is creator he created all things for him, through him, and that he has a purpose for each of us, firstborn from the dead. There is a life beyond this one, my friends, where we will spend an eternity. It's time to adjust our priorities to that life, preparing for it. Tomorrow at about 4 a.m. or so, I'm going to uh, get in the car and drive to Colorado to take my daughter to college. It is a journey. Today, my thoughts are not on today. For now, they are here. They cannot go anywhere else. But when we say amen and we walk out the door and we smile and we love on one another, it's all about Colorado. Friends, in the same way, this world is the place that we are going to leave from to a world that we will stay forever. We must adjust our priorities to live with Jesus. If we are uncomfortable with Him here, how will we possibly be comfortable with Him there? Friends, start now. If Jesus is God, then love Him. Love Him more. Learn more about Him because the more you learn of Jesus, the more you will love Him. And in loving Him, you will not be able to stop yourself from serving Him because the love of Christ compels us. Jesus. Amen. Father, God, thank You for revealing Jesus to us. Jesus, thank You for coming for us. Spirit of God, we thank you for the work that you've done in us. But God, our hearts still cry out for the things of this world. Forgive us. This morning, you have drawn us to yourself once again. Jesus, we want to love you more. We want to know you. Express to you our gratitude and our wonder and awe of who you are and what you've done. God, we want to set our hearts right so that we long for the next life as we live through this one. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Rick Willard.